It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Boris Johnson appeared to be on the cusp of a Brexit deal this week. Crucial progress has been made in negotiations with the EU, but time is almost out for an agreement. I have to say uh, that things are looking difficult. And... If that doesn't happen, then, well, uh, come January the 1st, uh, we will be trading on on WTO terms, uh, an event that uh, obviously has been four and a half years uh, in the making, uh, four and a half years in the uh, the preparation. Uh, Yes, it may be difficult at first, but uh, this country will prosper mightily. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, the last of 2020, I'll be looking at whether a deal is really in the offing, or whether the UK and the EU could still stumble towards a no-deal outcome in just two weeks. Political editor George Parker and Jim Brunston, our Brexit Brussels supremo, are with us once again to take us inside the room. And later, we'll be looking at the UK's latest struggles with COVID-19 and why the tier system doesn't appear to be working. Is next week's Christmas relaxation of restrictions going to work? And where are we at with the vaccinations? Health editor Sarah Neville and political reporter Jasmine cameron Shaleshi will explain. Well, I can't believe it, but we have finally made it towards the end of 2020 and what a year it's been. It it feels quite an odd one in some respects because it's passed quite quickly because we've lacked so much stimulation or excitement or anything, but it's been chock full of things and it's a difficult year to ask highlights for, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. George, what's been your highlight of 2020? Well, to be honest, it's been a pretty rough old year for everyone. It's been a fantastic year professionally, of course, because we're covering two of the biggest stories of our political lifetimes, Brexit and COVID. But I say my highlight probably, and probably yours as well, Seb, was the fact that our colleague Laura Hughes had her first baby and we've both been lucky enough to see the happy couple and their baby in the last few weeks. So I think that's probably been the highlight of the year for us. Well, indeed. And I'm going to throw into that as well. A recent highlight that sticks in our mind is that just before London went into tier three, the FT's little political team made it out and we had a quite sumptuous lunch in Covent Garden with the five of us before everything shut down again. And it was a reminder of how lucky we've been that we've all made it through and what a busy year it's been. Jim, what about you? Yeah, echoing what George said, obviously, it's been been an extremely, it's an extremely strange year uh, to try and pick highlights out of because of the prevailing situation. One professional moment that made me happy last week, um, a slightly odd one, is that I got to go to the European Commission. To be honest, I never thought I'd be so happy to see the place again. But basically, after all the months of confinement and all this working from a distance, I actually went to the European Commission and interviewed a commissioner in person, respecting strict social distancing guidelines, and actually just getting back to old haunts and seeing the press area again. That felt pretty good after this very, very weird way of working that we've all been adjusting to this year. 
Well, the year isn't quite over yet. There's still Brexit and there's still coronavirus. So let's kick into the main topic. In two weeks time, Brexit will finally happen. Four and a half years after the vote to leave the EU, three prime ministers and two general elections. The moment of reckoning will arrive on January the 1st. But no one in Brussels or London has any idea of what that's exactly going to look like. A trade deal has still not been secured. It looks like the negotiations will go right down to the wire. As of Friday afternoon, talks are still continuing, but time is really running out. As Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, told the European Parliament this morning, these are really the final hours. So Jim Brunson, let's begin with what's actually happened this week. The negotiations have continued. And unlike so much of the Brexit process, it does feel as if things have actually shifted a bit. So where has the progress been made? Well, there is progress. And of course, you hear differing interpretations of this from either side. But the real progress has been on the level playing field issues. So these are the issues around the EU's demand for fair competition between businesses on both sides of the channel. And so there there has been a, a breakthrough, which actually dates back to last weekend, which is they are working on a, a system to preserve fair competition over time. It, it would link the UK's future market access to staying roughly in, in parallel with EU rules in areas such as environmental law and labour rights. Where things are now very difficult is in the area of fisheries. And I think everyone always expected the negotiation to come down to fisheries in the end. I think very few people really believe that it's an issue that could sink the talks, if you excuse the pun. It's a very difficult, politically sensitive discussion. Britain wants to take back sovereign control of its waters. It's a very visible aspect of Brexit. The EU, on the other hand, especially, obviously, its coastal nations um, near the UK, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark. Ireland as well, are very concerned about maintaining as much as possible of their existing fishing rights. So that's where we are at the moment. Now, George, there's been quite a difference in tone this week from both sides, that the EU's been vaguely optimistic. You heard Ursula von der Leyen talking about the pathway towards a deal. You had Michel Barney talking about good progress is being made. There was a call between the two political chiefs on Thursday evening. And the result of this was quite a different approach here, with Boris Johnson giving a very downbeat assessment, saying we're at almost the end of the road, time is running out. What's going on there? Well, there could be two things going on. And they might both be true. One is that Boris Johnson may be tactically downplaying the prospects of a deal, essentially threatening the other side that we are going to walk away. And this ultimately is Britain's strongest hand in this whole negotiation, the idea that we might walk away from the negotiating table, knowing that it would do more damage to the British economy than it would to the European economy, proportionately. But nevertheless, it would do some damage to the European side. And would we be crazy enough to do that? Well, Boris Johnson has certainly left enough doubt hanging in the air to make people think he might walk away. But the second possibility is he actually means it. And um, if you speak to his colleagues in Downing Street and uh, people who see him on a daily basis, they say he says the same things in private as he does in public. I think that's quite important, by the way, if you're negotiating, you don't want to let this percolate down through the system that the prime minister's bluffing. But I think Boris Johnson, of all those people who talked about the possibility of no deal, probably believes it most. And I think that's what sows seeds of doubt in the European mind, because Boris Johnson is not someone who's really very much on top of the detail. He's certainly someone who has a sort of optimistic demeanour about Britain's destiny outside of the European Union. And so that's the air of uncertainty about where these negotiations are going to end up. But as Jim and I were saying on the podcast last week, I think, you know, there will still be a deal. 
at the end of the day, but we're into the final part of the theatrics or indeed the, the hard negotiating, if that's what it is. So this thing on fish, Jim, the issue seems to be that it's a basic negotiation about numbers, right? It's about the quotas, how much of the UK's fishing water the EU has access to. And both sides, the UK wants to have 80% access, the EU wants to give it 18% access. So it feels like that's going to be a bartering backwards and forwards. But there's also some debate about access for EU ships and crews to British waters as well. What's the way through on this, do you think? Okay, so at, at one level, it, it's an extraordinarily complicated negotiation. And so the, the two teams tucked away in one of the European Commission's buildings uh, here in Brussels are dealing with stuff in excruciating levels of detail about pelagic and demersal species and relative quota shares for them. It's immensely complicated. But what it seems to be coming down to is that the UK is offering a kind of transition period to the EU on fish, saying, look, for three years, that's the UK offer, after January 1st, we will offer you some semblance of stability. Your boats will have guaranteed access to our waters and we'll settle quota shares for that period. There are about 100 different fish stocks spread between UK and EU waters. The EU basically wants that to be far longer, has suggested eight years. Then there is the question of what comes afterwards. And the EU side doesn't want what comes afterwards to be a black box. It wants some certainty about that as well. Um, Michel Barnier in the Parliament suggested one way to get that, which is to say, well, OK, we have this transition period. But then afterwards, if at any point the UK then decides to cut our boats out, well, then the EU will have a mechanism within the trade deal to react. And that will be by imposing tariffs on UK products, and notably, and, and Barnier mentioned this, uh, fisheries products. So you don't want our boats? Well, we don't want your fish. That's essentially the parameters of what we're talking about. And George, how does Boris go about selling this to his MPs? Because obviously he's promised over and over again to take back control and take full sovereignty of British waters. The question is, if it's not full sovereignty, if there is a transition period, and if there's still some kind of quota system, then you can imagine there will be some disgruntled MPs, notably the Scottish Tories, who are making a big deal of the fact that they will have regained fishing waters and many of those coastal communities that back Brexit. Will they lump it or will they kick off? I think most of them will lump it, to be honest. And it's been quite an important part of this whole process that there's been a back channel from the negotiating room back to the senior members of the European Research Group, the Tory Eurosceptic Group at Westminster, led by Oliver Lewis, who's the Prime Minister's political advisor on Europe, who's been keeping them informed. And you notice there's a difference between the people in the inner circle of the ERG, the high command, who seem to be keeping their heads down largely and seem to be broadly signed up to what's going to come out of a deal if we get a deal. And those more on the fringes of the group who, frankly, will never be satisfied with anything that comes back from Brussels. You know, I think probably there's somewhere between 10, 15, maybe 20 maximum Eurosceptic Conservatives who won't sign up to any sort of deal, frankly. But at the end of the day, if we can't sell the fish into the European markets because there are huge tariffs on the products, well, that's counterproductive. And the other thing is, you know, you speak to members of the cabinet, they will admit that the problem is if we don't have a transition period, there'll be a whole load of fish in British waters that we won't be able to catch because we don't have enough boats. So this is one question I'm keen to know the answer to, Jim, is that if the deal is done, will all the new rules and trading terms come in on January the 1st? Or is there going to be some kind of implementation period? Because I know with regards to customs checks, the UK unilaterally has suggested that they will be phased in over six months. But could that be reciprocated? Because if it's not, then it could be the similar kind of chaos you'd get from no deal on January the 1st. 
Well, there's no indication from the EU side that they're going to do anything like that. So the, the message from the EU side is that the new system will kick in on January the 1st. It will be there. As far as the EU side is concerned, this is an issue about the integrity of the single market. And if they start showing too much forbearance towards the UK, then very quickly the EU is going to start getting into trouble with other trading partners around the world. So I think that's quite difficult. Um, the other message there's consistently been from Brussels is that businesses have had a long time to prepare. The EU has published dozens and dozens of preparedness notices to different industries, explaining to them uh, how in any circumstance, trade deal or, or no trade deal, things are going to be different. So I'm not sure there's that much sympathy on the EU side for that, except, of course, in the area of fishing, where they're trying exactly to enshrine a kind of transitional arrangement inside the trade deal itself. But I think that the thinking on the EU side is very much to get this thing ratified before the end of the year and get it in place precisely so you don't have to deal with the legal and political ramifications of, of some kind of stopgap solution. Well, getting this thing passed into law, if the deal is done, is going to be breakneck speed. The House of Commons has gone into recess for Christmas, but MPs could be recalled if something is struck over the weekend, as Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House of Commons, said this week. Honourable and right honourable members will recognise that talks with the European Union continue. Should a deal be secured, it is the government's intention to request a recall in order that Parliament may pass the necessary legislation. I'm sure that the whole House will agree that the country would expect nothing less. George, we've been working on the assumption that if the deal is done this weekend, then Parliament would come back on Monday and Tuesday and push this thing through as quickly as possible. And that does two things. One, it means the House of Lords can't really get stuck into it and really scrutinise it in a way the government would fear could hold it up. And two, it means those Eurosceptics in the European Research Group who might not be happy about these compromises, again, don't have time to dig into it. It might be good politics, but it's probably not great policy making to do this. I think that's a fair point. I think the particular concern will be the Eurosceptics getting their favourite lawyer, Martin Howe, to go through this with a fine tooth comb trying to pick holes in it. I mean, that would be a dangerous situation for the government. So the fact that these talks are running into the weekend is probably advantageous from the point of view of ramming a bill through Parliament, but as I say, not necessarily great policy. There's a technical reason, by the way, why Jacob Rees-Mogg didn't basically just say that the House is going to carry on sitting through to Christmas. And that's because if they'd done that, then the normal parliamentary rules would have applied. And that would have meant, for example, on Monday, the Commons wouldn't have sat until 2.30 in the afternoon. Under the emergency recall procedure, it basically means you can wipe clear the whole parliamentary timetable to allow this bill to be pushed through very quickly, possibly with very early and very late sittings in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. But it's a real dash, isn't it? Because they want to get this bill onto the statute, but with royal assent before Christmas. But nevertheless, we will be pushing right up against the Christmas deadline. And finally, Jim, I'm going to put you on the spot now and say, what do you think is going to happen? Is the deal going to be done this weekend? And briefly, how does the European Parliament have to pass it? So there is going to be a deal. I think the deal is going to come this weekend with fish as the last major outstanding issue to be solved. And it will be done this weekend thus um, satisfying the European Parliament's deadline. The Parliament wants a deal to be struck by midnight on Sunday if it's going to be ratified before the end of the year. So the MEPs will then go and organise a plenary session of the European Parliament before the end of the year, which is what they've agreed to do to ratify the agreement. That is what I expect is going to happen. But Brexit's full of surprises. And George, what's your view? Do you agree with Jim? Is it going to come home this weekend? Well, I have to say, I, I, I hope Jim's right, because it will mean that we might get a little bit of a Christmas uh, Seb, to be honest, I've always thought there will be a deal like Jim. 
I'm not so confident about the timing because we all know the real deadline is the 31st of December. My fear is that this might just drag on through Christmas and spoil things a bit for the festivities. But yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed and uh, it would be great, I think, for all concerned if the deal can be wrapped up by Sunday. George and Jim, thank you very much. The UK's fight against coronavirus took a turn for the worse this week. Since the end of November's lockdown, the tiering system of social restrictions has struggled to keep the virus under control, hence the decision by Boris Johnson to move London and much of the south of England into the top tier, with all pubs and restaurants closing. But there are also increasing concerns across government that the Christmas relaxation, due to start on Wednesday, will lead to a higher spike in cases and therefore further hospitalisations and deaths. Chris Whitty, England's chief medical officer, raised these concerns at a Downing Street press conference. We do have a vaccine that will be protecting the most vulnerable in a, to a very high degree of protection uh, in the next two to three months. So we are tantalising close to the stage where anybody who gets into trouble as a result of actions this Christmas would have been protected uh, in the very near future. So it is very important people think about that uh, when they make decisions over the next uh, few weeks. Sarah Neville, can you begin by giving us an overview of what's happening with COVID in the UK at the moment? Because we came out of November's lockdown, which seemed to get the infections back under control and ease the pressure on hospitals. But quite rapidly, the situation is not going in the direction the government would want it to be. Yes, that's right. Areas where the virus was diminishing are now flatlining. And it's led this week to the government's decision to put the vast majority of the country, well, about two thirds of the country, under tier three restrictions. And these are the toughest restrictions of all. No indoor household mixing, and you're only allowed to mix with people outside in a public place like a park. And of course, we're coming up to the very sensitive Christmas period where the government has decided to stick with its planned relaxation. So we've got a slightly odd kind of split screen moment, I guess you could say, where very tough restrictions are being imposed just days before they're in turn relaxed for this sort of Christmas window when families will be allowed to mix together. Well, Jasmine Cameron-Shaleshit, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you on. Why did the Prime Minister make this decision about putting London into tier three? Because when the lockdown eased at the end of November. It was very much on the line between tier two and three. And the general view in Whitehall was that the economic cost of keeping London's pubs and restaurants closed would be huge. But it looks as if something has changed since then. That's very true. At the beginning of this week, you could tell that they didn't want to put the capital under the stricter restrictions. And we heard from Sadiq Khan earlier in the week, really voicing the alarm about the economic impact. But we saw an exponential rise in cases and parts. So that coupled with the new variant of the virus really meant that the government really had little choice but to put the capital under tighter restrictions. Now, of course, it's a very different picture in different parts of the UK at the moment. While London's infection rates are going up, Manchester's have been going down, but not quite fast enough to take it out of that top tier. And Andy Burnham, the Labour mayor of Greater Manchester, was particularly unhappy at the fact 
that his city didn't see its restrictions loosened. This is what he told BBC Radio Manchester. When it was the other way round, when we had that big increases, it was only the north that got uh, got restrictions. Now, when it's London and the southeast with rises, the whole country has to go into uh, you know a, a more cautious position. And so, I think large parts of the country today will feel that there's one rule for London and the southeast, and there's a different rule for for the rest. Sarah, do you think Andy Burnham has a point there in what he's saying? Because I think it's nine out of the 10 boroughs of Greater Manchester have infections below the national average rate. But of course, there's other factors. And I think it's hospitalizations are the big issue and pressure on the local NHS. Yes. I mean, I guess one of the really big themes of this year has been this tension between central government and the devolved administrations. And Andy Burnham has been probably the most vocal local leader, and he obviously feels badly aggrieved by the way his area has been treated. But as you say, Seb, they don't just look at straight infection levels in determining what tier an area belongs in. And this issue of pressure on the National Health Service is one of the really big factors. And that pressure is I think it's fair to say considerably greater at this point than had been anticipated, particularly when the Christmas relaxation was announced. We had some powerful voices weighing in this week on the risk to the NHS. We had the editors of two prominent medical journals, the British Medical Journal and the Health Service Journal, who for only the second time in their joint and very long histories penned an editorial together, saying in the strongest terms possible that we were looking by New Year's Eve at the same level of infections, the same level of hospitalizations as we had at the start of the first lockdown. And they are sounding a very urgent alarm about the pressure on the NHS. And I think that's undoubtedly one of the things that was taken into account when the decision was taken to keep Manchester in tier three. Now, Jasmine, the question, of course, about this Christmas relaxation is whether the government is creating a problem or trying to mitigate it, because I think there's been internal modelling done in the heart of government that shows that if they weren't relaxing the tiering system for Christmas, people would just break it anyway. And once you've broken the rules, once you'll break them again in the future. So in some ways, the government doesn't have much choice but to have some form of relaxation for Christmas. But still, it's raised a lot of eyebrows. And we had this clarification from Boris Johnson this week saying Christmas must be short and small, not quite the message that we heard last month. Yes, definitely. And I think Boris Johnson is really in quite a tricky situation because we heard, I think it was in July, when we saw the relaxation of the first national lockdown, where Boris Johnson promised that we'd have a relatively normal Christmas. And he was very much saying the same thing in November. So we're really seeing him trying to walk back previous promises to the public. And I think it's quite striking that there's such deviation between the approach taken by England and the other devolved nations. I think it will be very clear after Christmas which approach has proven more successful and actually reducing the rise in infections. But this approach of the different regions, Jasmine, is quite interesting because there was a call 
between the government and the leaders of the devolved nations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland this week. They agreed to keep the overall legislation in place for the Christmas relaxation and not changed it. And while Boris Johnson has just issued very stern warnings, those other nations have taken a slightly different approach. In Northern Ireland, we've got a lockdown. And in Wales, they're really cutting that Christmas relaxation period. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I do think it's very apparent that within Wales in particular and in Northern Ireland, there is a sense of alarm that potentially the Christmas period, similar to what we've seen in America, where we saw the Thanksgiving period really sparked off a surge in infections, that the same can be seen throughout the UK. Now, Sarah, let's move on to what's going on with the vaccination at the moment, because we had the first statistics out, which I think about 180,000 people have been vaccinated so far. Is that good news? Should it be lower or higher? Well, I think, to be fair, this was always going to be a limited rollout this year. The vaccination programme won't kick into full gear until next year. Certainly at the rate so far, the current run rate, it would take many, many, many months to get through the people even in the highest risk tiers. But as more vaccine comes on, as more doses arrive in this country, and as we have the prospect of new vaccines being approved here, notably the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which we're all waiting on, that's currently under examination by our medicines regulator here, the MHRA. As we get those additional doses and we roll out more infrastructure with more GPs being involved, for example, and more hospitals, and the beginning of these mass vaccination centres, which from the new year are going to be set up in places like racecourses or car parks, I think unquestionably the numbers will kick up rapidly. But this is clearly what everybody is waiting for. This is the only real prospect as things stand of the government being able to lift these very exigent restrictions that most of the country is living under at the moment. And what is going on with the approval of the AstraZeneca vaccine, Sarah? Because we haven't heard anything on that for some time. And there's so much hope in government about this getting approved, because as you said, the only way to reduce the tiering and to do that is a big, big mass rollout of vaccines. And that requires one that is cheaper and easier to roll out than the Pfizer-BioNTech one we've seen so far. Well, one of the issues is the rather muddled way that the data came through when the fundamental safety and efficacy of that vaccine was announced. Rather unusually, we were given three different numbers for efficacy, a 62% efficacy, significantly below the other vaccines that we've seen so far, which had been tested across all age groups, a 90% efficacy, which it turned out had only been tested on people of 55 and below, and not the most vulnerable group, and a 70% efficacy, which was a kind of averaging out of those two. So that has raised questions as to whether the 90% efficacy rate could possibly be approved without some more data and more information about how that particular dosing regime that produced the 90% rate plays out in older age groups. So we could, I think, potentially be looking at a two-tier approval where we get approval for one dosing regimen, the one that produced the 62% percent 
rate, but have to wait a little longer to see whether the 90% rate is going to be approved. And finally, Jasmine, this all plays into the question of, are we going to see another national lockdown? Because that second lockdown we had in November was something that Boris Johnson really didn't want to do. And we suspect was actually bounced into it by certain people in government without a full decision being made because they thought there were indications the tiering system was working. But there's a lot of talk around on Friday morning that, in fact, because of the Christmas relaxation, because the vaccine programme hasn't yet got pace, we could all be in lockdown again in January. And it's already happening in Northern Ireland. Yeah, certainly. I think that's something that the government wants to avoid. But I think it's becoming increasingly likely particularly over the Christmas period, where we'll see large movements of people, particularly from areas like London, moving across the country, spending time with their families, even if they're just limiting their movements to one or two households. And so we've already heard from people like Professor Chris Whitty really voicing the alarm and saying that this period could be the potential trigger point where we see an uptick in infections. One thing that I think Labour have quite successfully been able to argue is that they've constantly questioned the government on the tiering system and they've questioned the effectiveness of it. We've seen in places like Kent, for example, that have been in tier three for quite a while now and the case rates are still incredibly high. Now, the government points to areas such as Liverpool and it's said that that's an example of the tiering system working successfully. But when we look at areas like Kent, it does make you question, well, how effective is the tiering system? What will happen if there is a spike in infections after Christmas? The natural an inevitable answer to that does seem to be a third national lockdown. And finally, Sarah, what's your views on the further lockdown? Do you think it can be avoided in the new year? I think the really alarming thing from where I sit is just looking at the data that shows that the strain on the NHS is already starting to build. We had some data that came out showing that a significant number of ambulances are already being diverted away from the first hospital that they arrived at. Now, this is a phenomenon that we do see during winter, but we don't generally see it anything like as early as December. And the earlier part of January is traditionally the very worst time for the NHS. People who haven't been able to get their ailments looked at over the Christmas period suddenly produce a wave of sort of undammed demand. And the thought of that coming on top of the impact of the Christmas relaxations really is causing considerable alarm and anxiety at the highest levels of the NHS, not to mention from all the the doctors and nurses on the ground. Well, Sarah and Jasmine, thank you very much for joining us and have a good Christmas wherever it may be. That's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics and our last episode of 2020. If you enjoyed it, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and your smart speaker to receive episodes when they're released. And why not write us a nice comment and give us a rating? It's a great way to share the show. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Dillamere. Sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. We're off for Christmas. We'll be back with a special show the week after on January the 1st to discuss the thing that's happening on the day you know, Brexit. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.